Traveling on business? Then take us along and stay on track. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Coming up. Coming up on the Money Beat Podcast, it is the 2015 Bond Market Awards. Who was the central banker of the year? What was the best drama series? Who was the villain? Who was the hero? Talking about all that right now. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets. And then some. Oh, hey, hey, hello, everybody. Paul Vigna, Stephen Grosser here. Special Money Beat podcast as we gear up for the end of the year. We are uh, coming up with our lists, our best sub, our this and that, you know, doing all our year-end recaps. And we came across one thing that we thought was interesting enough that we wanted to get the gentleman here on the air with us to talk about it. Bob Michael is Global Head of Fixed Income for JPM Asset Management, and he did his 2015 annual Bond Market Awards. Today, that's what we're talking about. And it's been an exciting you know, year. Oh, a what a year in bonds. in bonds. What a year in bonds. Uh, Bob, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me on. We are glad to have you on. Now, some of this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but some of this was slightly tongue-in-cheek, wasn't it? I think most of it is. <laughs> yeah. So why did, um, why did you go with Mario Draghi as the central banker of the, of the year? Yeah, I had year? a lot of problems with that selection, by the way. Well, I, I think if you remember, remember back to the start of the year, he, he came into the markets with this overwhelming force and this, we'll do anything it takes, and and brought rates down to negative um, and, and printed just tens of billions of euro in money every month and pushed a lot of the curve um, across Europe through zero and got a lot of people to believe that 10-year bonds could trade at zero percent by the end of the year. And then here we are at the end of the year. He has a chance to confirm that. And what does he do? He, <laughs> he limps in with a pitifully little drop in the deposit rate and, and no expansion of QE. So I think there's a lot of drama and flair there. I likened it to an Italian opera. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so, so it, I'm going with him. All right. We, we could spend the rest of this podcast arguing about whether he was central banker of the year. He, he was not the only banker causing he a lot of drama. He was not the only banker causing a lot of drama. But, but let's, let's move on. Let's talk about, and this is an interesting one, especially this week, the best drama series which I think you, you nailed this one. Thank you very much. I went with JL and the Feds. I think that they absolutely blew it this year. With the forward rate guidance, they were supposed to come in and take all the guesswork out of the market. So what did they do? They guided us towards a tightening in June, and then they got cold feet and backed away. They got us pointed towards the first tightening in September, and then they got frightened by the market and backed away. And so finally, in December, we got the first tightening after nine and a half years. I think they could have done it a lot more seamlessly. It does call into question the value of forward rate guidance, but maybe that's another blog. Right. And, and this, this was a cliffhanger. This was this was like Walking Dead or Game of Thrones. I mean, will they, won't they? Are they dead? Are they alive? A lot of drama with the Fed this year. And the other, I so. What's also interesting is I think you look at the ECB, where in December disappointed the markets. And then you have, mm -hmm. I mean, Yellen delivered exactly, you know, what the markets wanted to hear yesterday. 
I, I think so, right? And and that was a concern that that she might drog the markets. Oh, that, 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 hey, I like that one. There might be an expectation um, that the statement would be quite dovish. And I think actually the whisper around the markets was, what if it's not? What if we have a repeat of what happened after the ECB move? So just by actually meeting market expectations and not much else, there was a sigh of relief across all the markets. So you know what? In the end, good job. They got it right. And we move into 2016 and watch the data. Uh, let's move right along, Mr. Grocer. What do you think there? Well, I was I was saying, you know, I really liked the best, the bond of the year. Right. I don't think many people would have picked this as their choice, but, but it was- A lot of choices in the bond universe. Russian local debt. Yeah, Bob, Russian local, yeah, who knew? Who knew, right? It's returned 40%. We started at the year at a yield of about 13 and a quarter percent. On the 10-year, right now we're about nine and a half percent. So you got about 26, 27 percent in capital appreciation on top of the 13 percent yield. And wow. when you look at Russia, there's not much going well. They're yeah. an enormous yeah. commodity exporter. They're dependent on energy exports. They're one of the few energy exporters where their debt has actually gone up. And I suppose in the end, it just highlights the value of looking at oversold securities and taking a chance. You know, to to ask a question about this and to be serious for a second, who is invest? who in New York City, in the United States, who is investing in Russian local debt who's not in Russia? Like, who took the chance and got that and got that great return? So that's a great question, right? Because ultimately, you have to decide that you're going to lend your money to Putin in rubles. Right, right. And not many people are going to reach into their own wallets and do it. And I think this highlights some of the criticism of relative return investing. Russia is a large part of the benchmark, particularly local emerging market debt benchmarks, So managers look at it being oversold for the part of the year, start to get a bit of momentum, and have to rush in and buy it to cover their perceived short to the index. And I think ultimately that's what supported it. And you can see that even in the last week when a lot of emerging market debt sold off, it held rock steady. So, you know, it, it, it does highlight some of the risks of being a relative return manager. Now, I was just going to go, like, you know, everyone likes a comeback, and you have U.S. government bonds as your choice this year. Yeah. You know, they're supposed to be dead. Yeah. Don't they know it? Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't the U.S. government bond market know that the Fed is raising rates, yields are supposed to go up, it's supposed to drop in price? We started the year out at about a 220 yield. Here we are, not too far away from, from 220 um, again, you know, it, it's a real surprise, but but I guess the the Treasury market's a real fighter. Well, I mean, that's I mean, it's interesting. I think people have been calling an end uh, to the Treasury bull market for what thirty, 30 years, years now, yeah. and and it's and it hasn't materialized. Yeah. But Don't call it a comeback. Let, let, Don't call it a comeback. They've been with, here for with years. Yields, with yields at two point three percent, the Fed's got to get to 
at least two, two and a quarter percent before 10-year treasuries look expensive. So wow. they could be the surprise of next year as well. Yeah. Let's talk about let's talk about the currency of the year. And you know, the U.S. dollar has been been like the Carolina Panthers this year. Can't lose. But you didn't go with the U.S. currency, Bob. I know this. This you know, it, in many respects, it could have been so easy to go with the dollar. But when you scrape away and look a bit below the surface, there's the Chinese renminbi. It's supposed to be pegged to the dollar. So what are you actually getting? Yet in August, they shocked the markets by unpegging it. And I think there's a lot of confusion. Were they trying to get into the IMF strategic currency basket, or are they really trying to deal with trying to engineer a soft landing? And, and we think the latter. So I don't think it was actually too surprising now that they've moved from a peg to the dollar to a peg to a more diversified currency basket. Um, so, so they're struggling uh, trying to engineer this soft landing across um, China. And I, I think when you look at um, the, the flow of capital and there have been decumulation of reserves, they have to relieve some of the pressure of being locked to the dollar and look at other currencies um, so that uh, some of this capital um, decumulation uh, slows down. So, yeah, and, and the shock waves that it sent through the capital markets pretty much froze right. the markets from August through the end of right. the Right, and, and, and well, that was the big shock, right? So the Chinese, the renminbi has that, that crazy August, and the market in China has a crazy August. But, but I was wondering, you, know, you name it the currency of the year. Are you saying, therefore, that you think the Chinese are actually doing a pretty good job of trying to engineer this soft landing? Because people still talk about, you know, you can't trust China data. It's actually much worse than they say. Hard landing's coming. But, you know, what do you make of out of how they are managing that whole process? I think how they manage the slowdown is actually more important than how the Fed normalizes rates. <laughs> and if wow. they can pull off a soft landing and create this glide path down to six and maybe ultimately in a couple of years to five, five and a half percent GDP with a relatively stable currency that they can control the devaluation. That's a job well done. I think that's a lot to ask for a country that's overborrowed, overinvested and created a lot of overcapacity and oversupply into the markets. Hmm. All right. Good answer. I want to know who your uh, unsung hero is of the past year. It, it's got to be European corporates, right? They've, they've kind of flown under the radar. Here, here's supposed to be a market that a few years ago everyone thought was going to break up. It was a basket case. It looked like peripheral Europe was going to default. Who would want to invest in Europe when the dissolution of the EU could occur. Yet here we are today, and we're looking at European corporate debt, the best performing corporate debt on the planet. If I look at U.S. high yield, it's generated a negative return year to date. If you look at European high yield, it's generated a positive return. So I, I think it, it needs a bit more visibility. You look at the collapse in energy prices. 
it's questionable the impact in the U.S. It's a tailwind to consumption, but because so much job creation was in the alternative energy space, maybe it's going to create job destruction in the U.S. You don't know. In Europe, it's perfect. They're not energy or commodity producers. So the decline in energy and commodity prices is a decline in the input costs to corporations. And, oh, by the way, the currency is devalued quite a bit. So that's another right. tailwind to corporate earnings. And, oh, by the way, the EU still has these highly accommodative and expansionary monetary policies. I think it's all good for, for corporate Europe. And nobody really knows that people still think of it as a zone that's about to deteriorate further. Hmm. Uh, let's do, we got three more, and I want to make sure we get to all of them. So let's talk about the, the villains. Villain in a leading role, Bob. Who do you, you named a tie. I, I did name a tie, and, and when I tell you who they are, you'll understand why. I think they're, they're really just a pair of misunderstood assets. It's not really their <laughs> fault. It's oil and treasury inflation protected notes, um, tips. Both of those things are supposed to protect you from a surge in inflation, right? If, if you own oil, it's generally the cause of a rise of inflation. And tips, of course, um, the coupon accretes on the rate of inflation. Yet, yet here we are um, with break-even rates on, on tips um, at 1.5%. And if we think of the Federal Reserve's reaction function over the last four or five years, every time the break-even rate on tips dropped below 2.4%, you got quantitative ease or you got operation twist. So they've thrown away the rule book on that. Right. So we're significantly lower. A lot of that has to be um, what's happened with energy prices. Um, we're down something like 65% right. um, from the high a year and a half ago. Not good. Not good at all. No. Uh, best psychological thriller. This one, you know, we did not talk about, about this one a lot here in the U.S., I don't no. think. But it really is a, a big story. Tell us about the best psychological thriller. It's perfect for Alfred Hitchcock fans <laughs> because the master of psychological thrillers. It's Brexit. Yeah. And it's, it's the threat of actually the U.K. leaving the E.U. Now, it's a bit puzzling to me because all the benefits they talk about breaking away from a larger confederation, they don't use when they talk about Scotland having to remain a part of the UK. <laughs> right. Very puzzling. Yeah. Very puzzling. Uh, and then last one, uh, MVP, your MVP, not Cam Newton, not Steph Curry, not Tom Brady. Not LeBron James. Not LeBron James. You can go James. on and on. You can go on and on and on. Who was your MVP, Bob? Okay, well, the first thing I'm going to tell you is those guys, um, their MVP status to this MVP, quantitative oh, ease. It's inflated. Ah, right? Yeah, it's inflated yeah. everything. <laughs> it's inflated the asset value of everything, including sports franchises and the businesses that the owners run so that these guys can earn a lot more money. So yeah, you aren't right. too far off. Um, yeah, I went with quantitative ease. It, it was meant to do so many things. 
It was meant to create above-trend growth. We're not seeing it anywhere. Mm -hmm. It was meant to create inflation. Of course, mm -hmm. we're seeing quite the opposite. It, it does help make some of these sovereign debt burdens very sustainable because you're printing money to roll over the debt. But the one thing that we know it does do is it inflates financial asset prices. And I think ultimately that's the problem that uh, policymakers are going to have to solve when they decide to turn off QE. But in the meantime, I like to say what's not to like um, it keeps equities going up and bond yields pretty stable. All right. Bob, Michael, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, the year in bonds. Year in bonds. Bob, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. It was great fun. Terrific. Thanks for having me on, guys. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.